You know, getting a, a tour from somebody on the inside, somebody with a key, is always better than trying to take a self-guided tour somewhere. This past week, I happened to be in Texas for a couple days because I was blessed and uh, God smiled upon me. But whilst in Texas, decided to go in and check out some different churches there. I was there with Pastor Mike and we were looking around and we, we stopped at some different churches there, one of which was Prestonwood Baptist Church, which is this massive, it's, it's called, we refer to it growing up as Six Flags Over Jesus um, because it's just huge. Fort God, the Baptodome, all of those. It just rises out of the distance and it's this massive edifice and um, I can't remember how much their auditorium seats, but they boast a membership of somewhere around 25,000 people in that church. Um, Baptist people. So it's like really like 800 people in reality. And then a lot of people that are like, yeah, I go to church at Prestonwood. Um, but you go in there and, and we walked in and, and the doors on the, the worship center were locked and we kind of walked around the whole outside surface until we found, found a, a door that was open. And it was open, so we didn't break in, but we just walked in. And um, all the lights were off, but there were some dim lights on in, in the back, but we kind of walked around just we're looking at the whole thing and, and we're nerds because we geek out about worship centers like that. And um, so we went up on the stage and we were looking and going, wow, this is amazing. This is so big and everything else. And it's just, it's, it's too big. It's ridiculously large. Then we walk out and uh, we're standing in the, the foyer, which in Texas, they have these giant rooms called foyers outside the worship centers because weather happens there. And uh, you, you don't want to die with tornadoes and lightning and hail and things like that. So you you go to church and then you hang out and have coffee and things like that in the foyer. So there's this gigantic area and we're standing out there and all of a sudden we see two guys in polo shirts with black slacks come on and one of the guys clearly has a detective's badge on and, and Pastor Mike and I looked at each other and we're like, yeah, they're probably here for us. And so we, we decided we'd move on to the next church. But there were a couple churches where we actually knew somebody that was there. And when we showed up, we, they greeted us. They said, hey, come on, I'll, I'll show you around. And they got us not just in the worship center, but they kind of showed us around and showed us some different areas where the offices are, where um, the, the fellowship halls are, and, and just kind of gave us a, a good, uh, thorough uh, access to the whole facility there. It wasn't like we were trying to, to find the open door by ourselves to get in there. Yeah, having somebody give you access who has the authority to give you access is always much preferable to, to trying to gain access on your own. In our passage in the book of Hebrews tonight, what we're going to find is Jesus does that for us, but not to give us a guided tour of heaven or anything ridiculous like that. No, Jesus, the privilege that we have in Christ is that we have access to the very presence of God through Christ. We have access to the very presence of the Father in and through Christ. And in fact, if you don't have Christ, you don't have access to the presence of that God. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're in verses 14 through 16. 14 through 16. The writer says, Since then we have a great high priest. Hopefully that language is starting to become familiar for you. The high priest theme echoes throughout the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It begins in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. I want to ask you tonight, before we go anywhere else, is Jesus your high priest? Because if he's not, none of the rest of this matters. 
A high priest was the one that represented the people of God in the presence of God. He was the one in the Old Testament that went into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to bring that sacrifice and to come before the presence of the glory of God there with the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and, and to, to offer an, a sin offering on behalf of all the people and to mediate between God and the people of Israel. That office was carried on in the New Testament, though it didn't really matter because the glory of the Lord had departed from the temple back in the Old Testament. So they were just playing priest at that point in time. But see, in Jesus, when Jesus comes at the incarnation, and then from that point forward, after the cross and the resurrection, what Jesus is, is Jesus is now the only high priest, and he's the great high priest, and he's the one that does the same thing that the Old Testament high priest did, but does it way better. Jesus is the one that intercedes, that mediates between a perfectly holy God and us who are not perfectly holy. And my question for you tonight, is Jesus your high priest? Is Jesus the representative between you and God? Is he representing you before a perfect and holy father? Is he appealing for your acceptance before God the Father, not based on how you did this week, not based on how much you read the Bible this week, not based on whether or not you uh, sinned in your thought life this week, not based on whether or not you sinned in your words this week, not based on whether or not you showed up at church this morning or on Saturday night or showed up at church tonight or whether or not you did your DBR, not, not based on anything that you've done, but is Jesus your high priest? Is he mediating? Is he representing you before the Father, pleading not what you've done, but what he's done, which is the cross, his sacrifice that was perfect, that as we'll read much later in the book of Hebrews, was once for all times, that has fully and finally satisfied God's wrath against sinful humanity. Is Jesus your high priest? If not, nothing else that I'm going to preach about tonight will matter to you at all. In fact, nothing else that anyone preaches ever will matter to you at all. If you're here tonight and you have not decided to trust Jesus as your Savior, if you're here tonight and you've not admitted that you are a sinner and that God is a holy and just God, if you're here tonight and you have not acknowledged that that sin has created an, an inseparable, an insurmountable chasm, not inseparable, insurmountable chasm between you and God. If, if you're here tonight and you have not considered that the penalty for that sin is death and eternal damnation, if you're here tonight and you have not looked to Jesus as the one that paid the penalty for that sin, that died that death for you, if you're here tonight and you've not decided to trust Jesus in that death, on your behalf, and not that he died only, but that he also rose again from the dead. If you're here tonight and you haven't made that decision to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life, my question for you tonight is why not? Why not? What is keeping you back tonight from surrendering your life to Christ? What more information do you feel like you need than what you already know? The ask is plain. It's clear. And here it is. I'm asking you tonight, if you have not already done this, to repent. That's a word that means to turn from. It begins in your mind. It's an internal 
beginning here that says, I'm going to no longer live for myself. I'm going to no longer live where I am the God of my life, but I'm going to repent from that. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to surrender my life. And here's the next thing I'm going to ask you to do, not just to repent, but I'm going to ask you to, to trust in Jesus as your savior. And you say, well, what is it to trust in? Well, you guys all know because you all came in and sat down in those chairs. You are trusting that that chair is going to hold you up. You are trusting that it's not going to collapse. You are trusting that it's not going to fail. Well, there's a a decision of trust that you need to make that doesn't have to do with whether or not you're going to have a a seat hold you up. It has to do with whether or not you're going to live eternally with Christ or in the presence of the wrath of God. So I'm asking you to trust that Jesus, that Jesus opened the door Pave the way, pay the penalty for your sins so that you tonight can know that you are forgiven before a just and holy God and that Jesus rose from the dead. He's not still dead. He is alive and that you will, when you die, eventually go to be with him, right? Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So your death is, event, is eventual, not your, your time with him. You will immediately, after you die, go to be with the Lord as he said to the thief on the cross next to him, in paradise. Have you made that decision tonight? That's what I'm asking you to do tonight. And if you haven't and you aren't tonight, my question to you is why not? Why not? Maybe you think, well, the expectation is that I'm going to be perfect afterwards. No, it's not. Come in and examine my life. I'm here to tell you I'm not perfect. Shouldn't come as a surprise to any of you. But I'm not. I sin still. I'm married. I sin against my wife. Though I don't want to, I do. I'm a dad. I'm an imperfect dad. I sin against my kids. Though I don't want to do that. In my flesh, sometimes I get up out of bed and I don't feel like, man, do I really want to do my DBR this morning? There are times, there are seasons in my life where it is a discipline for me more than it is a delight for me. I want you to know that I'm not up here saying that, that this is only for people that are fully holy and fully perfect and, and fully godly, and if you're not, then you're not welcome. It's quite the opposite. Jesus said, I came not to seek the righteous, but I came to seek the, the sick. I came to seek the lost. I came to seek sinners. He said, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick need a physician. And y'all, if you're here tonight and you have not come to Jesus, let me ask you, plead with you, beg with you, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, let me plead, let me implore you, is the word that he uses there, to be reconciled tonight to God through Christ. Turn to Jesus. Trust Jesus tonight. Make sure that Jesus is your high priest. That's our first point tonight. Make sure that he is your high priest because his argument assumes that. Since we have a great high priest, well, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your savior, you don't have a great high priest right now. You have a fearful expectation of judgment is what you have. And you don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to get your act together before you come to Jesus. You need to come to Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. You stop trusting that you can numb yourself and, and just enjoy the pleasures of life and not worry about these things until later on when you grow up. What if you don't get to grow up? You need to to stop trusting and being a good person and think, well, I'm a good person, so being a good person will get me into heaven. 
No, you have to be a perfect person, not just a good person. You need to stop thinking, well, there's many ways to heaven. There's many ways to eternal life. And yeah, this is just one of them. It's, it's not just one. It is the only one. The Bible is unapologetic about the fact that it is an exclusive claim on the path to eternal life with God. And so tonight, I want you to make sure that Jesus is your high priest. And if he's not, that can change tonight. There are no prerequisites other than faith and repentance. So if you are feeling that, if you are feeling that tug, let me encourage you, don't ignore it tonight. Because you don't know how many more times God is going to tug on you. There's nothing greater for any of you in this room than that Jesus would become your high priest. There's no greater message that you can hear tonight or anywhere else in the world than the message of the gospel which says that you can be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And there's nothing more urgent or pressing for you tonight than to make sure that you have been reconciled to God through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I want to talk to you tonight for just a second about the validity of this, the gospel. The gospel is what we call this. It's the good news. It's what that means in Greek. It's just a transliteration of the word euangelion. It's the word that we translate gospel. It means good news. And it's good news because it's the solution to your sin and God's holiness. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, number one, it means that God exists. And for some of you, that's a hurdle out there. But let me just talk to you for a minute as I talked to my apologetics class this morning. And we're going to marry these two things, a little presupposition on classical apologetics if we can together tonight. But God exists. Let's talk about the earth's access tilt. You didn't think I was going to go there tonight, did you? None of you saw that coming. The earth is tilted on its its axis at 23 degrees. You say, well, why does that matter? Well, if it were to shift by a mere one or two degrees in either direction, life on earth would be absolutely impossible. Why? Well, we would either burn to death or we would freeze to death. This is part of what's known as the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle is a principle that argues that this universe that we inhabit, but more specifically the planet Earth that we live on, is designed in such a way to provide for life to exist on this planet. And it's so fine-tuned that to argue that it is chance is to bury your head in the sand and hope that God doesn't exist. Maybe the Earth's tilt doesn't get you excited because you don't like globes or you had a traumatic experience with globes or whatever. I don't, that's fine. Let's talk about the earth's atmosphere. 21% of our earth's atmosphere is made up of oxygen. That's a good thing, right? That's the reason why you and I are able to continue to breathe right now. But again, if that were to shift in either direction by mere percentage points, life on earth would be uninhabitable. You say, why not? Well, what would happen if we had less oxygen? What do you think would happen? We would, what happens when you can't breathe and you die? It's called, rhymes with smuffocate, starts with just an S. Suffocate, right? We would suffocate. This is not a trick question. Less oxygen, you can't breathe, you die, okay? Well, what about more oxygen? We would either suffocate or more oxygen, anybody? We would live on a planet of spontaneous combustion. There would be no more cigarette smokers. Nor would there be any more barbecues lit. Because the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere would create combustion anytime an open flame was lit. 
Again, precision. And there's more than this. And if you're wondering about more, sign up for my CBI class and you can come listen, right? But there's more than this. And I don't mean to give you a plug for that class. I mean to tell you and to let you know that there are there is, is reason to believe in the existence of God. The force of gravity, right? If, if you take our current force of gravity and it's on this end of a ruler and you take the greatest force possible of gravity on this end of a ruler, if you were to move us one inch on that ruler, we would be crushed under our own weight. There's the cosmological con- constant which is the fact that all of the planets have been expanding and all of matter has been expanding from the origin of the universe in such a way to allow for the formation of planets and the arrangement of planets and galaxies. And if it were any faster, then matter would not be able to, 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 to congregate and form those things. If it were any slower, it would all collapse back in on itself. And yet we want to say, well, that's all just chance. The, the likelihood of that happening by chance, as one author put it, is one in 10 to the, now think about powers, right? And then imagine 15 pages of zeros after that 10. No, sorry, not 15 pages, 1,500 pages, off by a few thousand. 1,500 pages of zeros. One person put it this way, that'd be like going to outer space, taking a dart, dropping it from outer space and hoping it hit a bullseye. Or another author put it this way, it'd be like finding one singular atom in the entire known universe. And yet we want to believe that. Why? Because we don't want to be accountable to God. Well, I'm here to tell you guys, the good news of the gospel is that yes, you are accountable to God and that God is a holy, perfect, sinless God. And that's his standard for us. Absolute perfection, bar none, no question about it. God says, you want a relationship with me? You have to be perfect. And now you're thinking, well, here it comes. It's about morality. Well, no, it's not, because here's the thing. All of us, and I had just talked to you about myself, uh, we're not that. We are not holy. We are not sinless. We are not perfect. We fall short of that standard. We don't measure up. So there's the problem, the bad news. The penalty for that then is an eternity in hell. And people want to argue, well, that seems harsh that just by my white lies, by my disobedience to my parents, that I would have to spend an eternity in hell. But remember, we're talking about an infinitely holy God. So the proportionate response from God must also be infinite in its response, which is why hell is eternal. That's, that's the bad news. And you said, but wait a minute, this is the gospel. It's the good news. Well, what's the good news? Well, the good news is this. Because we couldn't satisfy that standard, that perfection, but all of us have fallen short because all of us have sinned, here's the good news. God, the Father, sent his son, Jesus, to step in between us and the wrath that we deserve by dying on the cross for our sins. He was punished for your sins and my sins. And then three days later, rose from the dead, which by the way is a historical fact validated not only by his own eyewitnesses who all died for that reality and that truth, but also from external sources that are not Christian sources even. And the final clincher is this. Now you can be forgiven if you do what we just talked about. You repent from your sins, you turn to Jesus, You trust that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. This is why it's the good news. And so again, my question for you tonight, if you haven't done that, is what's keeping you back from that? 
Why not? Y'all, the point I'm trying to make tonight is this. You're not right before God because of your performance, but Christ's performance for you. Not because of your actions, but because of his actions. If you're not in Christ, the answer for you tonight is not that you should stop sinning. It's not that you should stop drinking. It's not that you should stop doing drugs. It's not that you should stop you know, sleeping around. It's not that you should stop with the, the profanity and, and everything else. It, it's, it's not, that's not the answer. That's not going to move you towards God one bit. The answer is recognizing, yes, that those things are wrong and turning to Christ and saying, Jesus, I need you to pay the penalty that my sins incurred. If you think of it financially, like the Apostle Paul compares it, you've racked up a massive credit card debt and it's time to pay it and you can't pay it because you've got nothing. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus took that debt and affixed it to himself on the cross. And he, in turn, gave you all of the riches of his righteousness so that you will never want or be in need again when it comes to your standing before the Lord. So the answer is not stop sinning. The answer is turn to Jesus. Because you, you can't clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. That doesn't do you any good. The Pharisees needed Jesus just as much as the woman caught in adultery. And so come to Jesus. Turn from your sins. Repent from your sins. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus. He died for your sins. And you can be forgiven tonight. And you can leave here tonight sure that Jesus is your high priest. That he is now between you and the Father mediating for you, representing you, saying he's righteous, she's righteous, and she's righteous, Lord, with my righteousness. Yeah, no, 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 no. He, she, that, he failed to keep the law. She failed to keep the law. But Jesus, they have, or, but, but Father, they are righteous because I perfectly fulfilled the law and I gave that to them. Their sin, I, I, I took that on to me and, and, and I died for them. They are clean. They are righteous. They are, they're not just innocent, not guilty, but they are innocent now. That's what Jesus can do for you tonight. But it comes down to have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't, then he's not your high priest. So the first thing that you need to do tonight is make sure. Make sure he is your high priest. The author says then, since then he is your high priest. So if he is, right, he's concluding if he's your high priest, since he's your high priest, if you're in Christ, we have this great high priest. Now he goes on, he says, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us then hold fast our confession. Our confession, what's our confession? Well, it's everything that I was just talking about. Confessing our need for Christ. It's confessing that we trust him as our Lord and savior. It's holding fast to our confession that he is our savior, that we need him, that our righteousness is not our own, but it's his. The, the author is saying, hold fast to that. Remember in Hebrews, he's writing to a group of people that were looking at the law going, oh man, the law looks pretty good again. And he's going, no, it doesn't. No, no, you're not righteous in the law. You're righteous in Christ because of him as your high priest. So he's saying, because you have that great high priest, hold fast your confession. He says the one that's, that's passed through the heavens. That's a weird way of saying this. But what he's talking about there is Acts chapter 1, when Jesus, after he tells the disciples, hey, you're going to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then it says in the text, they saw him what? They saw him leave. 
And he left and he rose up into the sky to go back to be with the Father until he should return. So he has passed through the heavens to be where he's at right now as your high priest, which is at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for you, as the writer would say in Hebrews chapter 7, living to make intercession for you. So he's saying, look, you've got this high priest who's not here. He's not like you and I. He's not hanging out in the church. He's not in some Jewish synagogue somewhere. He's definitely not in the temple because there's no temple right now, right? So you've got a better high priest than this. This high priest is actually not here at all. Why not? Well, because he's at the right hand of the throne of God because he's the son of God and he's interceding for you. So hold fast to this confession. Don't let go. Y'all, do you value your relationship with God? And you're like, man, Pastor PJ, we're talking basic stuff tonight. Is he my high priest? Do I value my relationship with God? Of course I do. Do you really though? I mean, do you, do you fathom, do you understand that there's no better relationship anywhere on earth than your relationship with Jesus? Or do you consider that the benefits of being at peace with the creator of everything? Some of you guys don't like it when your like, neighbor is upset with you because you parked in front of their house. No, we're talking about the God of the universe. And in Christ, you're at peace with that God. Do you consider the phenomenal blessing it is to have the Son of God representing you before the Father? Not based on your performance, but his performance. Do you think about the, the joyful security that that is for you? Because his performance is done. What did he say from the cross? It is what? It's finished. He didn't say, it's mostly done. Now these guys can just finish out and, and fill the rest of it. No, you are secure in Christ because he's pleading a righteousness that's already accomplished and already credited to you if you have repented from your sins and put your trust in Jesus as your savior. There is a security there. Do you value your relationship with the Lord? Again, Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Y'all, that's, again, what a high priest does, intercedes for. Please, not his righteousness, or not our righteousness, rather, but his righteousness. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. No greater advocate, no greater high priest, and there never, ever will be. Point number two tonight is this. Realize what you have in your high priest. Realize what you have in your high priest. And we're so familiar with it that it can do damage to us because we've just grown numb to these things. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34. He says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? If you don't like that word, there it is in the Bible. Now let's build a bridge and get over it. It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who is indeed, here's our concept, interceding for us. Here's what Paul's saying. If you are in Christ, he's like, what, what are you worried about? He's like, who's going who's gonna to condemn you? You think God's going to condemn you? You think the Father's going to condemn you? He's the one that justified you, that declared you righteous. The verdict's already rendered. He's not going to go back on that. Or you think Jesus is going to condemn you? Well, he has the right to condemn you. He's the judge. In fact, when we look into the, the future of what's coming, Jesus is the judge of all the earth, right? Revelation 19. But y'all, if you're in Christ, you don't need to fear him as the judge. 
He's not going to condemn you. He died for you, is what Paul's saying here. And, and not only that, not only did he die for you, but now he's, he's interceding for you so that you are secure. He gives greater weight to when Jesus says in John 6, look, all that the Father gave me will come to me, and of all that come to me, I will not lose one of them. How can he be so sure that he's not going to lose any of us? Because he's always interceding for us. And you can't out the grace of God in Christ. Don't, don't make that your goal. Okay? Nobody tried that. Just tr- take me at my word for that. But you cannot sin yourself out of fellowship with the Father if you are truly in Christ. Why? Because Christ is always interceding for you. Always. Always interceding for you. There's no security like this anywhere. And we live in a world that wants security. There's no guarantee like this anywhere. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? We talked about it at retreat. Isaiah's there, and he's before the throne, of, and Jesus is on the throne, and all the angels are there saying, holy, 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 and these cherubim, these burning ones, and the foundation of the, the, the temple is shaking at their voice, and the train of his robe is filling, and there's smoke everywhere, and Isaiah's taking it all in, and, and he says, woe is me. He said, I'm, 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 I'm done. I'm going to die I'm going to be judged. I'm unholy. I'm unrighteous. That's what's contained within that. Woe is me. Remember what happens next? It says an angel comes to him with a coal from the altar and touches his lips and says, your sin has been what? Atoned for. That angel doesn't say so in the text, but we know what an angel is. An angel is a messenger of God who doesn't do anything apart from God sending him. So Isaiah was there in his need wrecked and undone, a sinner before a just and holy God, and God sent the angel to atone for his sin. Well, y'all, similarly, but in a much greater way, we were before a just and holy God, undone and lost in our sin, and God sent not an angel, but his son to atone for our sin, not with a coal, but with the cross. And our sin is taken away from us there. Do you realize what you have in Christ? When you die and you stand before the Father, if the Father were to ask you the evangelism explosion question, which is this, why should I let you into my heaven? I, I want to know, what would you answer to him tonight if you were to die? What would you respond to him? Well, I, I, was, a, I, was, I was a pretty good person. I, I went to Compass Bible Church, and they're an expositionally preaching church. I carried the, the extra spiritual version, the ESV Bible. Um, I took an apologetics class. I uh, grew up homeschooled. I, I'm picking on the homeschoolers a lot tonight. I need to not. I grew up going to private Christian school. That was me. Um, I didn't swear. I didn't have sex because I wasn't married. Um, I didn't drink whatever's running through your mind, if it's not just simply pointing to Jesus and saying, because of what he's done for me, then it's the wrong answer. If it's not saying to the father, because your son will vouch for me, then it's the wrong answer. Because Jesus is my high priest, then it's the wrong answer. Because Jesus offered himself in my place for my sins, and because of his sacrifice, Father, your wrath against my sins has been satisfied. If it's anything else, it's the wrong answer. In fact, if it starts with you, it's the wrong answer. 
Romans 3.20 says as much, right? For by works of the law, no one is going to be justified in the sight of God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he says then, since we've got this great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Let us cling, let us stick to, let us adhere to is the idea there. Strengthen your grip on your confession that Jesus is your savior, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead and that you trust him and that his death has taken away your sins. Hold fast to that is what the author is saying here. Because that is is what we're talking about. Because now he's interceding for you. He's pleading his righteousness for you. And he's before the Holy Father for you. Hold fast. And here's the reality, y'all. For some of you in the room tonight, your grip is weakening. It's slipping a little bit. And you need to be reminded to hold fast. You're being lured away by the sights and sounds of the world. You're being lured away by a a worldview that says, well, really can't I have Jesus and be Uh, okay with people just loving whoever they want to love? That sounds pretty normal. That sounds pretty good. Or or can't I have Jesus and also push for this social realization of heaven on earth through the social gospel? Can't I have both of those things? Isn't Isn't that what Jesus wants for us? Some of your, 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 your grip is slipping and you're being, you're being pulled away because you're being pulled into a, a sinful relationship. And you're doing things with a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you never, ever, ever thought you would do. And your conscience is being hardened and seared to that because you refuse to repent and make a tough decision that's the right decision to say, I'm done with this relationship because it's pulling me away from my allegiance to Jesus. I'm not holding fast because I'm trying to hold fast to you and to Jesus. I got to hold fast to one of you. And sorry, dude, I'm going to kick you to the curb because Jesus is better. Some of you are seeing your grip weaken or slip because the reality is you're being starved because you're not feeding on the word. The writer of Hebrews would say, strengthen your grip tonight. I'm talking to you as a Christian tonight. If that's you and you find that any of those things or more that you are wanting more of the world and less of Jesus, then tonight it's time to regrip. It's time to hold fast. It's time to remind yourself of what you are holding on to. And ask yourself, am I trying to hold on to two things at one time? You can't. Jesus said it himself. He said, look, you can't love both God and money, right? Well, you can't love both God and fill in the blank. Because you're going to love one and hate the other. So make sure you have two hands firmly grasping and gripping your confession, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? How should I strengthen my grip? Let me suggest a few things. Number one, daily remind yourself of the good news of the gospel. We've talked about that. But daily, daily, every single day, Pastor PJ? Yes, every single day. Remind yourself of your need for Jesus and that that need was met through Jesus. Remind yourself of what he's doing for you every single day, that he is your high priest, that he is interceding for you. Remind yourself of the cost of your sin was the life that he gave for you. Second, take time out every single day to thank him for that reality and to worship him for that reality. Third, season your life 
with that reality. Here's what I mean. Seasoning goes into a dish, right? And it's supposed to disperse throughout the entirety of the dish. You don't want one pocket where all the seasoning is. I'm not even a chef, and I know that. You're welcome. That's free. I think I learned that on HGTV or Food Network or something like that. You want to season your life with the good news that Jesus has got you. In other words, your thought life, your conversations, what you're talking to people about, what you're watching on TV, what you are texting to one another, what you are talking about when you pass one another just casually on a weekend service, right? Your life should be seasoned with a love for Jesus, not a love for this world. It should pervade every square inch of your life. Y'all, this is something that at the end of the day, we should never, ever, 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 ever find that we are able to get over. Realizing what we have in our high priest. Romans 8, 1, some of you guys have that memorized. What does Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore now no what? Even the way that you guys said that shows me that we don't get it. There's therefore now what? No? Say that like you just escaped death row. So There we go. Thank you, Jude. Thank you. That's what I'm driving at here. We don't get it. Like we're here playing church because we've got sound doctrine and theology, but guys, this stuff matters and has eternal significance to you. You've been freed. There's no condemnation for you anymore in Christ Jesus. In fact, take your Bibles and go to Romans 8. We need, speaking of vaccinations, we need to be vaccinated with a little bit of Paul from Romans 8 if we can. This is going to get flagged on YouTube. Correct COVID information can be found at. Whatever, get off me. Okay, Romans 8, 31 through 39. Paul says this. Paul says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, and he is, right? That's what we've been establishing. Who, he says, can be against us? The answer is no one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Here's the passage we read earlier. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or suffering or distress or persecution or, or, or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Does that mean that God doesn't love me if I endure these things? I mean, as it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that mean, God, that you've abandoned me? Have you left me? Am I separated from the love of God because my life is on the line for being a follower of Jesus? He says, no, in verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, says Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Y'all, that is good news. And that's what it means that Jesus is your great high priest. That is why you have to hold fast to the confession because there's nothing else on this planet that is as good of news as that is for you. Nothing else on this planet that you can trust in for your eternal security. Nothing else on this planet that is gonna get you from death to life in Christ. Only that. And here's the deal, if you're in Christ, he's not going anywhere. He's got you tonight. Are you not thrilled by that? 
There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I hope that encourages you. Maybe you've been feeling frustrated, dejected, discouraged in your walk. Listen, okay, I get it. We need to to light the fire, fan the flame, get you back in the game and see you running hard after Jesus. But I want you to be encouraged that you are still in Christ if you have repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus as your savior. You cannot sing yourself out of the love of Jesus. Why? Because he's your high priest and he's interceding for you. Realize what you have in that. And when you do, that should make you go, man, I want to run hard after Christ. Verse 15. Hold fast your confession. Why, 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 why hold fast my confession? Verse 15. Why? Here's why. Because for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right, let's talk about that for a second. Back in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, the writer said this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made, made like us in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God against our sins for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now our author develops that argument, but gives it way more force because he says this, look, he has been in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. Well, let's talk about that because the question is what in the world does that mean that he was tempted as we are? Well, here's something that we need to understand. Temptation does not equal sin. You can't, this is a newsflash for some of y'all in the room and it's a good one. You can be tempted and not sin, right? James talks about a process of getting to sin. Right, So you can experience temptation, the lure, the pull of the world, and yet not sin. That's the beauty of Romans 6, that you've died with Christ. How can somebody who's died to sin live in it? No, you can say no to sin now. Temptation does not equal sin. Jesus was able to be tempted, and yet he was without sin. He never let temptation, as James puts it so graphically, conceive and give birth to sin. But he was able to sympathize with us, which is so important. I think this is helpful language to describe this. So I, I grabbed it from the, the website bible.org and, and I'm going to put it up here on the screen because I think it, it's, it's helpful what they say here. Speaking of this, in every respect, what does it mean that he was tempted in every way? They say this, they were not temptations arising from fallen sinful flesh, but, from, but the temptations placed in front of him by Satan and his demons and also other people. So here's the difference there, right? If you're on a desert island, you're still going to feel temptation even if there's nothing around. You're going to have temptation. Ladies, you're going to be thinking about that chocolate cake going, man, I wish I had that chocolate cake. It'd be so good. It's so much better than coconuts, right? Jesus didn't have a fallen nature. So there was no temptation that arose from within him. But these are external temptations to him. Think of Satan in the wilderness when he's tempting Jesus and says, look, here's some rocks. You can turn those to bread and I'm sure you're hungry. Why don't you just go ahead and turn those to bread? That's an external temptation happening to Jesus, right? 
The law of God, he continues, demands perfect obedience. We talked about that tonight. Thus, there's an essential unity to all forms of temptation. They all strike the same underlying desire, that is to disobey the law. It is not necessary, theologically speaking, therefore, for Christ to have been tempted with all the temptations humanity has ever faced in order to qualify as our substitute. It's highly unlikely that he was ever tempted with Sorry, I'm on the wrong slide here. Let me jump back up. It's not necessary for, it's highly unlikely, he continues, that he was ever tempted with homosexuality in his culture. It just wasn't an issue for him, okay? So when we talk about the fact that Jesus was tempted in every respect, it doesn't mean that every single temptation that you've ever had, Jesus had. But he experienced temptation to the same degree that you've experienced temptation, and yet he was without sin. So he's able to sympathize with you. He goes on, that is to say that it's not to say that he cannot sympathize with people who struggle with homosexual temptation because the root of temptation is the same, to make life work apart from God. And there is merit in the argument that he knew the force of temptation better than we do because the one who resists temptation knows its full force better than those who do not resist temptation. Does that make sense? So we're not saying here that that Jesus was tempted with every single temptation that you yourself face, but he was tempted in the same way that you are tempted in every respect. He was tempted to rebel against the Father, to sin against God, so he can sympathize with you. Sometimes we, uh, people who aren't living what we live, we point the finger at them when they're trying to come alongside and comfort us, and we say, yeah, but you don't really understand because you're not going through what I'm going through. When Jesus calls us to live holy and godly lives, we can't point the finger at him and say, yeah, but you don't know what I've, I go through when I'm tempted in this world. That's what the author is saying here. He can sympathize with you. So when he calls you to a life of godliness, he's been there, done that, yes? He's been tempted as we are, and yet here's the huge distinction. When what is it? Yet without sin. And that's what qualifies him to be your high priest. That's what qualifies him to die in your place on the cross. Because he died innocent and took your guilt. If he was guilty for something, he couldn't take your guilt because he had his own guilt to die for. But because he was without sin, perfectly innocent, now he can go to the cross and say, give me their sin, I'll take it on my account. And I'm dying as the innocent sacrifice here. Because I'm not guilty of anything. By the way, that's why death couldn't hold him. Because death is the wages of sin. This was the sinless one. Dies three days later, he's like, peace out, death, I'm gone. It's in the New Living Translation, I think. So it's this amazing high priest. And he says, then, so what am I supposed to do? Well, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And here's the kicker for us, right? If you are here tonight in Christ and you've been waiting for, okay, you've talked to the people that need to repent and put their faith in Jesus. By the way, let me remind you, if you haven't yet, why not? Let's talk about that. Come find me afterwards, find your leader, whoever, most important thing. But if you're here tonight and you're believing, you're going, okay, so what? Here's so what. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Here's how I'm gonna put it tonight is this way. Make use of your access through your high priest. I talked about it at the beginning. It's way better to have a tour through somebody who gets you access to places than to try to find your own way. Look, you can't find your own way to God, but you've got a high priest who's given you access to his throne, who's given you access to the, 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 the throne of God and the power of God. 
Are you using it? That's my question for you. Are you with boldness and confidence daily, because you need it daily, minute by minute, hour by hour, Paul says pray without ceasing. Are you coming before the Father to find grace and mercy to help in time of need? See, here's how he did this. Paul describes it for us in, in Romans 8. I'm preaching Hebrews 4, not Romans 8, but we spent a lot of time in Romans 8 tonight. But here's the deal. Paul says this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. That's good news, right? I want to be set free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, how did he do that? Well, the law, God has done rather, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law couldn't justify me. So God did it. How did he do that? Well, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul's saying, look, the law can't do something. It can't justify you, right? So Paul says, God's done what the law couldn't do. God has justified you. How'd he do that, Paul? Well, he sent Jesus to condemn sin in the flesh because here's what Jesus did. He came and he perfectly obeyed the law for us. So that notice what the language says there. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, because he's fulfilled the standard of the law, remember I talked earlier, the standard for fellowship with God is perfection, perfect obedience and righteousness. Well, Jesus fulfilled that, put it in your account, and so now you can come into the presence of God. Are you? Are you? Are you making use of this? Y'all, God dwells behind this gate, and the only way to access him, like I just said, is perfect obedience. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have access to the key. You're on the outside. But that's what Romans 8 is telling us, if you will come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 becomes true of you, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God, so now you have access to God. If you don't have access to God tonight because you're on the outside looking in, you can have access to God tonight if you will repent from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Most important thing. Jesus came to succeed where we failed and did just that, and now you can confidently draw near. You know what, R.A. Torrey wrote a book called The Power of Prayer. He says this, prayer has access to the omnipotence of God. Anybody in here not need the omnipotence of God this week? I don't think so. Why aren't you using it? Why aren't we using prayer more often? Technology's pretty amazing, right? I mean, right now, astronauts on the International Space Station, which is orbiting some 255 miles above the Earth's atmosphere are able to communicate with their divisions back at, at NASA. or with, I'm pretty convinced they're just talking with Elon Musk the whole time. But 255 miles above the Earth's atmosphere, and they're, they're able to, to have communicate. That's pretty amazing. Or like I talked about last week, I can pull out my phone and, and text Eric Zeller, who's halfway around the world in Dubai, and he gets it instantaneously, and he can text me back, and I get it instantaneously, and we can converse over text like that pretty amazing access. Or there's this access, which is a little bit less amazing, a little more weird. Anybody know what this is from? This is from the Met Gala. Some of you guys got that way too fast, and I'll pray for you, because um, prayer has access to the omnipotence of God. That lady's dressed like a chandelier. I, I don't even get it. And then that other lady's wearing a frame, and then that guy, Jared Leto, that's a head that he had made by some like special effects artist that he paid $10,000 for his own head. And he brought it with him to the Met Gala, because it's like Hunger Games, like that's what that, that's what, that's, that's that place. 
do you know a ticket to the Met Gala costs $35,000? $35,000. But hey, we're going to wear a dress that says, never mind, tax the rich. Um, <laughs> but a, a ticket costs $35,000 to get into this thing. That doesn't include, that doesn't include the, the dress or chandelier that you're going to wear. It doesn't include the jewelry, or I guess if you're wearing a chandelier, it's two for one. Um, it doesn't include your weird fake head that you're going to bring with you. Maybe he wanted to drive in the carpool lane, so he just like duct taped it to the seat back next to him and just was like, $10,000 worth it, I get to avoid LA traffic. It doesn't, or New York traffic. It doesn't avoid the, like, include the, the frame that that lady up there is wearing. It doesn't in, include the cost of the, your transportation because nobody's pulling up in their hoopty Corolla like me and, and being like, hey, can you park this up front for me so I can get it on my way out? Just next to the Jags and the Lambos over there. No, it doesn't, like, it's, this, we're, it, this is crazy expensive. Crazy expensive to get in here, right? Now imagine if somebody paid your way to gain access to that. Some of you guys in the room are like, dude, no way. Like, I will pass. I'll pass and be like, hey, give that $40,000 to the church because I don't want to go there. Some of you ladies who were like, that's the Met Gala. You're like, I-, I would be amazed by that, right? But if you wanted to go to that and somebody paid your way into it, you would go, wouldn't you? And you wouldn't walk in and be like, okay, I've seen it. This is great. I'm, I'm going to go back home and um, watch Legally Blonde or something like that, Right? No, you, you would stay, you would soak up every moment of it. You would think, wow, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm around these people. I can't believe I've, I've got access here. I, I can't believe this. I, I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be here, but somebody paid my way and now I'm here. I think you get where I'm going, but guys, Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 is more impressive than any of that. The access that you've been granted in Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 is more impressive than any of that. you are in Christ, you can literally speak to the creator of the universe. Does he hear you? Well, 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 Peter 3, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open toward their prayer. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You can bring your anxieties. He's going to hear you because he cares for you. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Does he hear you? Yes, he hears you. So let me ask you some questions based on this overall question of are you making use of your access to the Lord that you have through your high priest. First question is this, do you schedule time with your friends? Do you schedule time to be around your friends? My follow-up question is, how about time with the Lord? Do you schedule time with him? Do you tell your friends about your day? My next question is, how about the Lord? Do you converse with him? Do you talk to him about what's going on in your life? Or do you just assume, well, God's sovereign, so he knows I don't have to pray? Do you confide in your friends your deepest desires and hopes? You know where I'm going with this at this point? How about with the Lord? Do you turn to your friends when you're sorrowful or frustrated? How about the Lord? 
Y'all, we've been granted access to the creator of everything and everyone. And there's no greater privilege that we possess outside of our salvation than the privilege of prayer. Because your high priest has gone before you, tempted as you are yet without sin, and now he's now able to open the access for you to the Father so that you can approach with boldness to find grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and mercy, which is not getting what you do deserve in time of need. Well, what's my time of need? All the time. I never don't need God's grace. I, I never don't need God's mercy. And I can have it because of Christ. Make use of your access through your high priest. But again, my question underlying all that tonight is this. Is he your high priest? Have you trusted in him as your Savior and your Lord? If yes, you've got this access. Access that is unparalleled by any access you could gain anywhere on the face of this planet. Question is, what are you doing with it? If Jesus is not your high priest, let me again, one more time, ask you tonight what's keeping you back from changing that?